Heavenly Father, this indeed is our prayer, that you would sanctify us, that you would set us apart, that you would be shaping and molding us as we sit under your word. Father, that you would indeed, by the power of your word, lead us not into temptation, away from it. Deliver us from the evil one and all his accusations and all his, all his threatenings, all his, all his thwartings of our efforts, Lord, because you indeed are endowed with the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, and we trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to encourage you this morning to open up to the book of Psalms. As we continue our look at this uh, book two of the Psalms, uh, well, we'll look, book three, excuse me, we'll look specifically at Psalm 84. So open up your Bibles to Psalm 84. And would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Silah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Silah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in You. This is God's Word. Please have a seat. I want to ask those of you who are young, maybe those of you who are old too might remember, but have you ever been in such a place or experienced such a time that it just felt magical? And when you look back upon that memory in your life, uh, you look at it with such fondness, such what is it, such uh, delight that you wish you could just capture that and bring it with you. You know, those, those moments perhaps when you're a child and you go somewhere on vacation and it turns out to be a very special memory and you don't ever want it to end, uh, those, those magical types of moments, they engage your imagination. They, they let you, in essence, discover perhaps things about yourself that you might not otherwise have known. Uh, you know, for us, as you've heard me talk about our experience of, of going up to this cabin on the lake, as a kid, for me, that was kind of a magical moment. Those were magical times, and, and every summer when we would leave, it was a two-day car ride back to our home, and it was the hardest two days, perhaps, of the year, and, uh, because that, you know, that magical time is ended. And I, I distinctly can remember just feeling this weighted emptiness as we would drive away. It's as though that you could feel the lump in your throat, you know, your heart just kind of rising. You know that experience. You've had those kinds of experiences before. Uh, and it, it, it's certainly one that you can't 
create yourself. It just, it comes along, and they're magical, and when they do, you don't ever want them to end. And I, I use that story because I really think that the psalmist is touching on the same type of experience, but he's tying it to the worship in the house of the Lord. He is, he is writing in this language that is filled with a description of experience. He's not necessarily writing about doctrine. He's not describing the nature of God. He's not expounding those kinds of things. He is writing specifically about an experience of what it's like to be in the courts of the Lord. And if you've had one of those magical experiences in your own childhood, so you've tasted something about something of what that's like, that's what we are meant to associate with the worship of God. Now, I know not everybody associates that, that with their time in worship. Perhaps a Sunday morning you don't necessarily associate those things, but some of you perhaps have experienced that in worship. And the point is that it can be experienced in worship, and the point is that it is ultimately what we are meant to experience when we come into the presence of God to bring our worship. And I, and I want to explore that a little bit and to see how is it that the psalmist has arrived at this place? How is it that perhaps that we can arrive at such a place of experiencing that magical time in the presence of God? Because I th really think it's sorely needed. When we think about the Christian life today, I, I don't often think we associate this kind of personal experience of being in the presence of God with it. We perhaps think of perhaps the way we're supposed to live. We think of it as something that has identified us as separate from other things. Uh, maybe we associate our, our Christian faith with what we begin to see on social media with the occasional verse that's, that's posted by somebody with some beautiful scenic landscape behind it. And those are nice and those are fun, but I, the, the sad thing is I think a lot of our Christian experience gets boiled down to these little memes, these little sound bites, as though that is capturing what my faith is all about or my experience of who I am is all about. And that those things, while not necessarily bad, they don't do justice. They can never replace the experience of being in the presence of God when He is there in His temple, as the psalmist is describing here. Because he's talking about something that is filling the emptiness of the soul. And there's only one thing that can do that, and that's, of course, God. You were designed to have that, that hole in your soul filled with a relationship with your Creator. And with that missing, we feel that longing. We know that longing. And we're always seeking for something intuitively to, to fill that empty void. And the psalmist, who has tasted it, is writing a psalm for us describing what is it like when you finally taste that thing that is satisfying that longing that exists in the soul. So I want to look to see a little bit about how he's doing that. How does he describe that? Because it's all about worship. It's all about worship. And first of all, he says, worship gives us a taste of this joy. Worship gives us a taste for this joy. And look how he begins. He says in verse 1, "'How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts!' My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Uh, it's an interesting word. It's not my mouth is singing. It's my heart and flesh are singing. Something about inside me is so deep there, it, it is literally 
singing out for, to the living God. My soul, he's describing it as, as fainting when he's not there. It's as though I'm, I'm, I'm empty when I'm not in the presence of God. That's what he's saying. That's his experience. So it's all experiential language. And as a result, he's saying how lovely is your dwelling place. And lovely is really not perhaps the most, the strongest word to translate this. The Hebrew word would be better translated perhaps beloved. It's a, it's a beloved place. It's a place that I have, I can't help but love. It is a loved place. Now, love leads, that makes it seem like it's, it's a description of its appearance or something like that. It's, it's lovely, it's beautiful in the way you see it or the way you view it. But what he's saying is how lovable, how beloved is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. So much so that it's satisfying that longing nature that exists in deep in my soul. Now, if we think about the psalmist in particular, his experience, he's, he's writing about the time when the Old Testament had, during the Old Testament period, when there was a temple. And the temple represented the place in which God's presence was uniquely and expressly manifested. God says, I will write my name on this place. And we have those experiences, for example, when the temple was dedicated under the time of, of King Solomon, uh, when Solomon comes into the temple and they're offering up all of their, uh, their, their sacrifices before the Lord, and it says the, the glory of God came down and filled the temple in such a way that none could actually stand there. There is this visible, manifested presence of God in this particular place that he's talking about. So when the psalmist is writing about this, he knew what it meant to be a, a manifested, particularized presence of the Lord Himself. And I think that's an important thing for us to distinguish because when we think about the Lord and we ask the question, well, where is God? And that's, of course, one of the catechism questions that we ask our kids, where is God? And for those of you guys, your kids who remember it, can you say it? God is everywhere, right? So we think, well, why do we have to come together to worship if God is everywhere? Say, well, that's true that God is everywhere, but there is a particular manifested presence of God that is unique to the place in which God has designated for you to go and to worship, which in the Old Testament time was the temple. It was the temple. So to understand there is something different about this particular place and what happens here than I can ever experience anywhere else in the world. That's what he's saying. It is unique. It is, it is significant language that he's reflecting upon. And if you think about who it is that's writing this, this poem, we get that in the very opening of the psalm. It says, this is a song of the sons of Korah. And you think, who are the sons of Korah? The sons of Korah were one of the families uh, in the Levite tribe. And the Levites were set, set apart by the Lord to be the ones who would take care of the temple. They would be the ones serving in the temple. So in the days of Moses, they were the ones carrying and setting up the tabernacle. And then, of course, after David, when Solomon built the temple and the tabernacle was put aside, they were the ones serving in the temple. And there was different roles that would be served by the Levites in the temple. Some were appointed to be priests who would be the ones who administered the sacrifices, who would slaughter the animals and bring the blood and sprinkle it on the altars or on the people, who would be the representatives of God, before, of the people before God as they brought their offerings. 
that was one very important office that the Levi, the, the tribe of Levi, uh, would play for the people of God within the temple. But that wasn't the only position. If you go and read First Chronicles, David's describing the various offices that existed to serve in the temple. Another one uh, were the musicians. There was a whole musical section set apart, dedicated these people to serve as the leaders in the time of worship when they would come together in terms of their activity. So they would be the one writing the songs. They would be the one singing the songs. They would be the one leading the people to sing the songs, the songs that would become the way in which they would often communicate not only their worship, but an understanding of who this God is that they are worshiping. So, and they would often recount the experiences that the people of God had been brought through in order to bring them to this place where they got to know the presence of God in particular. But specifically, the sons of Korah were not either one of these. They weren't priests, and they weren't musicians. They were appointed to be what's called doorkeepers, a doorkeeper. We see that towards the latter part of the song, uh, how it's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord uh, than spend 10,000 elsewhere, right? This idea of a doorkeeper, and you think, well, what exactly does a doorkeeper do in the house of God? Uh, and that, that's, it's, it's, not, it's not this recognizable role as the priests would serve, we know what the priests would do. We could see what they do. It's not this very recognizable role that the musicians would serve. Both of those kind of those particular roles uh, gain a lot of recognition by the people because they're performing something that's very visible, very evident, uh, very felt. But the doorkeeper, he what he's doing isn't really felt by anybody. He's he's the watch. He's the watcher of the gate. It's kind of what he is. If you were to put that in today's kinds of terms, he would be like the behind-the-scenes custodian who takes care of the place. You don't really know he's there, but his role is important. And this is, so this is written from this perspective of somebody who doesn't come to the house of the Lord and gain some great magical experience because he has the accolades of the people, because they recognize him being up front, bringing their sacrifices, or being up front, playing that music in such a way. I mean, today those things can happen with people who are up front, they can be recognized because of their, whatever there is, their, their wisdom or their musical skill. And we, we give them some measure of adulation at times. And that can give someone a magical experience to some measure or degree. It's, of course, fleeting and flying away. But the doorkeeper doesn't have any of those things. None of that is contributing to his experience of what he's describing as the, the, the longing that I know in my soul is being touched, it's being filled, it's being satisfied not because I'm in front of anybody, not because I'm getting any adulation or, or praise of people, but solely because I've experienced the presence of the God who has manifested Himself in this place. That's what He's saying. He wants you to know how significant it is that there's a palpable presence to feel of God in the place where He has designated His name. What makes it such a grand place, a grand experience? He gives a little bit of a description of that as we continue reading verse 3 and 4. Look there with me. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. 
So it's an interesting observation. Here's one who does, because he's a gatekeeper or doorkeeper, he gets to dwell there in the house of God. So he gets to watch and see the things that nobody else would notice in the house of God. And here's a literal temple structure that's built, that's, and you can read about the description of how it's built with the height of its walls and the pillars and various things. And what he notices as he's going around, maybe perhaps doing his watching of the gates, picking up after people, he sees in the, up in the, in the rafters in the various areas that there's birds have come in and they've nested there. And he's making observation about them. Even the birds, the swallows, find a, a nest for themselves, a home for themselves. Now, what are, these, what are these birds? What do we know about birds from the Bible? Not, not a whole lot. They're not mentioned often. Jesus does at one time in the New Testament mention birds, if you recall. And He talks about sparrows, and He talks about the worth of sparrows. You can buy, what, two, spar- two sparrows for a penny? Or maybe that's backwards, something like that. The idea is that a sparrow itself doesn't cost a lot of money. If you were to bring a sacrifice before the Lord and you couldn't afford the bigger sacrifices, well, you were allowed to purchase a bird and bring it because these didn't cost as much. They're of little value. They are restless creatures. So what the psalmist is observing is even these, these creatures of little value, at least according to the world, who are restless creatures always flitting about, are able to find a home in this place, to find security and safety in this place. So, I think the observation could be made, even those who would seemingly be worthless of people, who seem to always be flitting about, not able to find a place to make their home, searching for something to anchor their life, here they can find a home. How beautiful is your dwelling place, O Lord. Even those who are worthless and restless can find a home, a place of safety and security. Secondly, if we think about this psalmist's experience, one, we talked about Worship gives us a taste of joy, a joy in the soul. But two, worship provides us with an anchor for our joy. Worship provides us with an anchor for our joy. I want you to look with me at verses 5 through 7. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Now, you have to perhaps do a little unpacking of what, of what he's talking about here to really get what it is. But the idea is that blessed are those whose strength is in you. Blessed are those whose anchor of hope whose anchor of longing, who knows where their soul is satisfied is in you, those people find themselves blessed. That's the gist of what he's saying here. Uh, you fill them somehow with strength. Now, what do we, how do we describe those people? Well, they are the ones in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Zion would be the name of the mountain on which the temple was built. So it's another reference to the temple or the place where God Himself is dwelling. So he's saying, in whose heart 
are the highways to Zion. What does that mean? In whose heart is always looking forward, longing to go back to the temple, to the place of worship where he meets with God. That's what's driving him. That's what's getting him through the day. So when he's away from the temple, in other words, what is in his heart? Well, he's longing for the highways to get back there. He's looking forward to that next feast, that next time of corporate gathering with the people of God where the priests are bringing their sacrifices before the Lord, where the incense is burning up as the aroma of the prayers of the people are going up before God, where they can experience a palpable presence of God that gives their soul such a measure of safety and security and satisfaction and joy that it carries them through those times when they're away from the people of God, from the temple of God. And that has a profound effect on people. That has a profound effect on you. The idea that you are blessed means there is a sense in which that, that sense in which you are so contented in your blessing pours out and overflows to other people in such a way that he says this, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. Now, Baca, is, it's a t- he's using it as a title because I think it was a very genuine place, but it has a Hebrew meaning of weeping. Those who go through the valley of weeping, go through, those who go through times of, of pain and suffering and struggle, make it a place of springs, a place when, the, when the, the waters have come up to nourish the land. The idea of a springs is a place where here's, here's a source of life. So they turn it from a place of weeping to a place of life, life-giving. And that's the nature of a person whose soul has been satisfied by the Lord, who goes about life with such a measure of contentment and security and safety about himself, confident in himself, that his life pours out into the lives of others and such that it makes their places, their valleys of Baca, places of springs. He becomes a taste of life for those people around him. That's the effect of having been in the and experience the very palpable presence of God in a time of worship. That's what the psalmist is describing here. Now, you could ask a little bit, well, how does that actually work? What does that do? And I I think when you… the idea of the swallows gives some measure of idea. He is noticing the… here are these birds that are normally restless, are able to find and make a home for themselves. There's something different about these birds he's noticing because of their place that they have found, that it changes their whole character, their whole nature. And one of the things when I would, my, my two weeks as a child in the, the magical, you know, cabin in the woods in Michigan would do for me, as I realized after reflecting upon it, is when I was there and there were no other constraints about the way I thought of myself that seemed to trap me where I was back home, I always felt like the true me was coming out. There's a different me when I'm there than I am when I'm home, and I'm feeling like this awkward kid, you know, who who's, who's, uh, uh, doesn't quite fit in any particular place, but there everything just seemed to click and seemed to fit. And it gave me this sense of confidence, this sense of perspective, and I think the temple is what is meant to do that for us. It lets you see yourself through the eyes of God and His Word and what it says to be true about who you are. 
which is different from the, what the world says about who you are or what you might try to wrestle to, to discover who you are. When you come into the house of God, what do you find out? You find that you yourself are beloved. You yourself are of great worth. You're an image bearer of God. You're of such great worth that God didn't withhold His very own Son in order to make you clean, which is another thing you see about yourself. You see yourself as clean. Your guilt and shame carried away and wiped away. That was the picture of the sacrifices as they were being brought before God. You find that you yourself look different through the eyes of God than you do through the eyes of the world. And as the heart, as as the highways to Zion are in your heart, the longing to be back in that place and see yourself once again as God would see you gives you a measure of confidence in yourself so that when you're going through the valley of Baca, you can turn it into a place of springs for those around you. So this is, again, this is the, the psalmist describing what in his personal experience what he sees about those who have had a genuine experience in the presence of God. Now, I hope that that's created a sense that I'd like to experience that. And maybe there are times on a Sunday morning when you gather together with the people of God that you experience some measure of that. Maybe other times you don't. And what is really the key? How do you get there? Well, the last part of it is the prayer that the psalmist offers up. If one, we would say, worship gives us a taste of joy, and secondly, that worship anchors our joy. Thirdly, we would say that the worship, worship is bound up with God's anointed. Worship is bound up with God's anointed. Look at his prayer beginning in verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Salah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Commentators would, would say in this prayer gives us a hint of the context or of the particular uh, setting of this, of this psalm. And one of the suggested settings is that the sons of Korah are looking back upon the time of David when he was uh, cast out of Jerusalem when his son Absalom tried to take over the kingdom. And if you're not familiar with that, David was the uh, the, the king that is most, held, most lifted up to be uh, the picture of God's anointed. Now, every king was called God's anointed, but particular David was called the man after God's own heart. This was the model of what God's anointed would look like. And David wrote many of the songs that we understand today. He, he experienced something of what the psalmist is talking about. And so, when he was away from the place of Jerusalem where God has put His name, he, taught, he spoke in longing language. There was one moment, this before he was king, when he was being chased around by the previous king, Saul, who was jealous of David and all his success. David and his mighty man had been hiding about in different places and different caves throughout the land of Israel. And at one point, David is there in his cave, he's away from Jerusalem, and he just he, he spurts out this, oh, 
Oh, how I long to taste the waters that come from the well back home. And what he's talking about is I've been, I've been exiled away from God's presence, and I long to drink the water that represents the being of God's presence. Now, two of his mighty men take his, his suggestion literally, and they break through the, the enemy, enemy army and go get him some water and bring it back to him. And David looks at it and says, how foolish of me to put these men at, rest, at risk, and he pours the water out. And you might think, oh, was he, why would he do that? Because he recognizes what the water represented more than the, the water itself, of being in the presence of God. When, David was, when David's son Absalom had sought to take the kingdom over, and David had to flee in a hurry away from Jerusalem, this is what the psalmist is describing. God's anointed is away from the temple, and our worship is bound up in the fact that the, the anointed of the Lord has got to be back in the temple. And in the moment, he's been exiled. He's been away, but He is our sun and our shield. He is the one we need. That's the prayer, O Lord. Look upon the face of your anointed. Bring Him back from His exile. And now, of course, while David was the, the king in the Old Testament that represented most about the Lord's anointed, he was only a, a shadow of the true Lord's anointed. That was, of course, uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God otherwise known as this, often as the son of David, the one who would be in receiving, inheriting all the promises that were given to David. Here we have Jesus Himself, who also was exiled for a time from God's presence. And our worship is anchored, it's bound up in the Lord's anointed. So our prayer is for the longing of the Lord's anointed to return to His temple. And of course, the great thing about the time in which we live is that that is exactly what's already happened. Jesus did go through a time of exile. When He was on the cross, He utters those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did He forsake Him? Because He had cast Him into exile, because He was carrying away the guilt of the people. But He carries it away, and He leaves it behind, and He rises, back, rises again from the dead and He ascends to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And we read about where we are, when, he, when Paul is describing where you are in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, blessed are you with every spiritual blessing as you are caught up to the right hand of God with Jesus Christ. There is a sense in which you yourself are able to stand at the very right hand of God alongside Jesus Christ. In other words, worship is bound up with the Lord's anointed. And because He has returned from exile, and He is at the Father's right hand, and He has brought us with Him, we get to stand before the Lord. Now, I know these are terms that talk about our, our forensic status before God, if you want to think about that. But the time in which we get to experience what that forensic status means for us is when we come together in corporate worship, which is now the place in which God makes His presence manifested. It's why Jesus talks about things where two or three are gathered together in My name. There I am in their midst. There is a sense in which when the Lord's people are gathered together, they form the temple of God. 
The church itself is the body of Christ, which is described as the temple that bears the Holy Spirit. You as a church are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So there is something different about when we come together as a corporate body, when we become the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we experience what we know to be true of what the gospel says. It is meant to be a place in which we bring our worship. And as we bring our worship, and as our hearts are tied up with the Lord, worship is meant to also communicate to us the satisfaction of the longing of the soul. So, I just would ask this morning, encourage you, when you think about Sunday mornings, don't think about what is it I've got to do this afternoon or tomorrow. I've just got to get through this morning. But stop and rest and see yourself as the Lord reveals yourself to you. Who are you in Christ? Let that satisfy the thirsty soul so that all those other days of the week, our hearts are on the highways back to worship. There was an old Loverboy song. Some of you might remember, everybody's working for the weekend. <laughs> it's like carrying them through the week. Oh, if I could just get to Friday night. You know, it's like, there's, there's some measure of truth to that. Of course, it's not the weekend that he's talking about. It's the worship that's at the end of the week or the beginning of the week that gets to refresh that emptiness that we feel, reminds us that we have a contentment to be found in Christ. So don't let worship be something you only do on occasion or you do because you feel like you have to or obligatory. Become. And allow the fact that the presence of God is here to be the thing that you taste and see and experience as good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that we get to come and worship you, that you have paved the way to your presence by the work that Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us, so that we might see ourselves as we see Jesus as holy and beautiful and perfect and of great worth. Lord, would you help this view of ourselves fill us with such joy, such contentment, such confidence that we become people who turn the valleys of Baca into the place of springs for those around us. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen.